So generally speaking with Silicon Valley, developers who are picking these up to build them out are looking at about fifty to $90,000 per key is what they'll pay. So if you use that as a rule of thumb, and I know that's a pretty big wide range, it means that a site today that's available for maybe $8 million, that you would put about you know 130 rooms, 150 rooms on it, you're probably going to come out at around $13 million. So in there, you can kind of do the math. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Shannon Shackley-Bennett. Shannon is a commercial real estate investor in the Bay Area that specializes in investing in hotels. In this episode, you'll learn how to wholesale hotels in the Bay Area and how to structure deals with the sellers to create massive profits for your investors. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, Contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and what do you do. Hi. Yeah. Hey, Sean. It's Shannon Shackley Bennett here from North Star Hotel Development. And as you know, we are a pre-construction development firm in the Silicon Valley that focuses on select service hotels. So those are the hotels that service Google, Apple, Facebook, and travelers that are coming to this destination. Very cool. And how did you get started in the hotel business? Oh my gosh. Um, Well, I came to America about five years ago from Vancouver and came to meet somebody through the U.S. Green Buildings Council that was focused on five-star luxury hotel construction and ended up getting to know them really well, doing a little bit of business development and realized that I just loved the hospitality industry and uh, everything that it brought to community. And then along the journey, I came to meet a developer who had said and introduced me to the world of real estate. And so I started to just really look at operations and, and bringing those skill sets to companies that needed me. And then I blended the two. So it was building out hotels and developing real estate here in the Silicon Valley and organizing companies that did that is really how I came into hospitality. Very cool. So go ahead and tell us like some of the first few projects that you did. I mean, for most people who are starting from scratch, they would never even think to even own a, like a hotel ever in their life, right? Single family, maybe an apartment building, but never a big commercial building or hotel. So yeah, so some of the first projects that I worked on It was, some of them were just bare land and you take a look at that and you, uh, you know, I've been talking to the brands and their directors of development and they were telling me what their requirements were for expansion and where they really wanted to see new hotels go. And so I just started to, you know, as I was driving around, I have four kids, so I get really busy and that requires a lot of driving. And as you're out there in the communities, you would see a lot that was empty, or you would see an end-of-life restaurant, something or a building that you felt like, oh, that should be torn down, and what would I put there? And so I really started to hone in and try to look at spots and say, is that what the brands are looking for? 
Is that what developers who want to build these out are looking for? And over time, as I understood the requirements better, I was able to make better fits. And so the time came when finally I found something that somebody said, yeah, we think that's a great fit. And that kind of launched us into the first project where you know, it, was, it needed to be rezoned. It needed to be entitled through the city to do that project and to change it from what it was today to what it could be in the future. So what are the kind of requirements that these, I guess, brands are looking for for their hotel lots? So it really depends on which market they're going into. And so for the Silicon Valley here, we're always looking for any lot that's over half an acre. And generally a corner lot is better than an infill lot. And something that is in an area that's downtown walkable, close to some of our top global companies where, you know, it's desirable to be working at because those are where you're going to have business travelers going to. And something that is zoned to support a hotel. Very rarely does our firm ever go into an area, you know, we just don't go where people don't want us. So the city's got to be excited about the project. The community's got to be excited about it. The brand needs to be feel that this is also going to be profitable for them. And those make really good, solid projects. I remember you were saying earlier that you did have to do some rezoning for one of your first projects. I mean, I bet that process was a nightmare, right? Because rezoning is a lot of work. <laughs> so as I said, when I came into the industry, my role was really operationally. And I came in with a small company. My job was to organize them and keep the deal flow structure. So we we're focused on the priorities. And over time, what happens is you start to take on more responsibility. You realize, hey, we could do more projects if we could raise more funds. So you're a small firm, so you go out and learn how to raise funds. And then you get funded and you realize, oh, now we've got more projects than we have project managers. So you roll up your sleeves and you start to do that work. And so the very first project that we were, I was involved in, I wasn't involved at all really in that rezoning. My job was to oversee that work that was happening and the project manager who was doing it. So I was a little blind at that point and ignorant, which meant I didn't realize how much work and effort that actually was. And as long as everything looked like it was moving ahead and on time, I was satisfied. So it wasn't until I got more experienced and had more time under my belt and then started to do it myself that I realized, wow, that was a huge amount of effort and it does take a lot of time. And we had a, a pro working on it. And looking back now, it's like, okay, there's thank goodness that somebody else was doing that. And I could learn by watching them and then apply those same you know, methods to what I was going to be doing in the future. So yeah, and the other learning that I came to be was because that was one of our first projects is I realized we don't want to ever go through rezoning again. It's so much easier to spend that time and find the project where you don't need to do that type of work. Unless you have a landowner who's sitting on it and they're willing to cooperate in joint venture and they've got time and they're comfortable but for me, a lot of our projects are fully investor funded. So I'm paying really healthy returns on that. And I want to get through the projects as swiftly as possible. So selecting one that needs to be rezoned um, would be foolish when I have others that are available to me today that don't require that kind of extra hurdle. And what is a typical time frame uh, like when you budget into creating a hotel? So for the entitlements, it really depends on the city, but generally we say it takes 12 to 18 months in the Silicon Valley. And there's some cities that we just don't even develop in because the way that the process is at the city, it would take us too long to do 
given the returns that we're offering investors. So uh, again, if somebody in a city where maybe some cities will only have two intakes for permitting per year, and you know, if it's only May and November, and that's the only time I can go in there to submit an application for development, I'm waiting a long time. Whereas other cities where we really like to be in, uh, I can go down to the city hall any day into the planning department, submit that application, and know within 30 days I'm going to have feedback from them. That's where I want to be doing development. That's a city that's open for business. That's a city that's excited to see new projects. Do you have any cities in mind? Yeah, absolutely. For us here, we focus on uh, San Jose, Santa Clara, Sunnyvale, Campbell. Those are primary Los Gatos, Los Altos. There's a couple that we just are not involved in because their process takes us just too long. We've looked at them. What are some bad cities to work in? And don't say they're bad. I think you just need to recognize their process. So Cupertino is one that takes a little bit longer and it's not as desirable. So you just have a little bit more to go through. You have a lot of pressure because you have a lot of people trying to do work in there. And all these cities have limited resources. So I suppose to turn it around, last week I was at the developers roundtable for the city of San Jose and they announced to us, hey, we've got 14 new planners that we've hired. Well, that's great news because that means that the planner I'm working with now is taking some of the burden off of their workload and, you know, they'll be able to really, it's just great when you've got more resources to help move ahead projects. So that's great news for the city of San Jose. They've got a full complement, full service team, and that's probably why they're very responsive to applications that are coming in the door. And when you talk about entitling taking about 12 to 18 months, is that before you guys have like an architect design it for you and structural engineering going over it? Or is that after the whole? No, you know, right from the time we're acquiring the property or we're getting into contract, which is two different scenarios, you're getting a site survey done before you even in contract. You know who you're going to be working with. We've got a preferred vendor team. We always go out to do our due diligence and get our at least three quotes on all the work that we do. But at the same time, we've got a team that we know that works really well together and works with the brands, has experience. And we're immediately, like as soon as we're in contract, we're engaged. Those teams know that the project's coming down the pipe already. And we build out our use of funds for investors based on estimates and quotes from them as opposed to a guesstimate. So we'll say to them, hey, this is the project we know we have coming. Can you get me an estimate? Get me a contract that's ready to sign as soon as I'm in contract. So we start immediately and that shortens our timeframes considerably because now you've got a team that's already familiar with the project. They know what the work is and they've already kind of budgeted and allocated time because it's one thing to get into contract with a vendor, but it's another, do they have the capacity to take on that work at that time? So you have to make sure that you fit in with their workload as well. So then after you get the project entitled, uh, how long do you budget for actual build out? So we don't, we're a pre-construction development firm right now, so we do not do build-out. Our whole strategy is to acquire land, get it entitled, get those approvals, and market it for sale, and sell it on to a builder, somebody who will actually put a crane in the ground, or another investor, or another developer. So that's why our project length is anywhere from 12 to 18 months. We've got a project right now that we just fully funded. Our investors are expecting to be out in six months, so... It really varies on the project and what point the development you're in and how much work you've done ahead of time. And also, we try to, every project now, one of my key learnings over the years has been that when we hire an architect, there's a couple things we look for is have they done any work 
and designed the product that we're looking for. So if we know that the site, like before we're even in contract, part of our due diligence is to reach out to the brands to say to them, is this site, you know, is it suitable for your brand? Because it's not like you can say, hey, I want to put a Hilton here and you just get to put a Hilton there. You have to talk to the Hilton. You have to make sure that it's going to, that there's no impact issues, that somebody else hasn't already signed a franchise agreement down the street for something else that will be marketed. And then you also need to meet their revenue threshold, the thresholds that you they have for revenue generation, because there's no point giving me a franchise agreement if it doesn't look like I'm going to sell rooms and be able to generate revenue for them. So there's a couple of hurdles that you want to look at crossing before you even get into contract on the property. And that engagement with the brands helps identify, okay, what could it be? And once I know what the hotel could be looking like, then I will select an architect who actually has experience in drawing that. And that's kind of the first thing I look at, first of all. And then the second is these days, what kind of experience do they have with modular? Because I know that designing it to modular and designing it to a brand makes it that much easier to market and makes it more attractive to the buyer. So if I'm somebody who owns you know, a portfolio of Hilton product and I would like to expand and I'd like to be in the Silicon Valley and I know I've got a developer who's actually had a site that's already approved or looked at by the Hilton and is been designed and gone through the approvals process for that. Now I would be looking at that offering in the marketplace much more strongly than I would for somebody who said, Hey, I've got a site that I've approved for, you know, 150 rooms and it could be any, any hotel. Well, that's great. You think you can get 150 rooms on there until you try to meet brand standard and then, you know, for whatever you want to have as that end user. So those are some of the things. And, and the marketing for that doesn't start at the point when we get approvals. The marketing has been ongoing for our firm for almost, well, for five years now, since I really came to America and got embedded into the hospitality industry. It's, it's a relationship business. And we just continue to be involved in industry and get to know those directors of development, get to know the brands, understand the requirements, understand what their clients are looking for, and help them meet those needs. Absolutely. And that's a good point you make that you can't just build like a like a vanilla hotel and expect any brand to want to move in there because like you said, there's some brand standards. There needs to be a certain square footage for each room, stuff like that. So when you're creating these entitlements, like how are you even finding your end buyer and how do you know that they'll buy it at a certain price point? Yeah, that's a great question because we do a discovery session every month for people who are considering investing with us. And a lot of times the questions are focused on the entitlement process and the economy and, you know, natural disaster, what would happen? And I generally go back and I say, look, the question you really need to ask is, do I have a buyer? Because if I don't have a buyer for this, I don't have profits to return to you. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about it's that relationship building. So part of what I do is our company keeps a really robust customer relationship management database. We've got over 200 pre-qualified buyers that sit in that database. And when I say pre-qualified, I don't mean, oh, they've got the proof of funds to buy the asset. I'm not worried about that. All of the folks that are in that database have their own assets already or have already demonstrated that they would have the ability what I look for is I've done the requirements gathering to ask them, you know, what size, how many rooms are you looking at? What would the brand be? Where's your ideal location? Are you more destination into the wine region uh, of Silicon Valley, like up into Saratoga and the hills? 
or are you more of the business traveler that needs to be, you know, downtown? Do you want to be downtown San Jose by the airport? Do you want to be down in, you know, right in the heart of Google land? So knowing that with those 200 odd buyers means that very, very targeted around who we're going to approach with the opportunity and working through them with also their preferred brand. So it's kind of like every sales process. You really need to find who's out there that's looking for the product that you're selling at that time and has the need. So did you create your list by looking at who has built hotels in this area in the past X amount of years and seeing like, okay, what are their buying criteria? Maybe reaching out to them, cold calling them, asking them what are they looking for? So we're actually, when I say we're really involved in industry, we go to a lot of conferences, we participate, we speak at them. We are invited to be sponsors and the people who are attending that conference are international. So oftentimes the buyer isn't local. In this case, there oftentimes it's somebody, it's a company that has a portfolio. And in many cases, when you're talking about property in the Silicon Valley, they're looking for the jewel in their crown. So they've got a huge amount of properties. They've built up their worth. They've got lots of experience in, in the hospitality space. And they would like something that's really, really attractive. And having property in the Silicon Valley and having a hotel here is. It's a really fun place to be. And it's got a great vibe. And we've got this hugely youthful business traveling community. So those are really fun assets to manage and operate and own. Absolutely. It's kind of like a pride of ownership thing, right? You have one of the best pieces of real estate in one of the best places in the entire world. That's the thing that people forget is that when you get into the hospitality industry, you've got two, you've got two assets. You've got the land that that building sits on, which is a appreciable asset. And then you've got this business, this hotel that sits on top of that. And some people separate them. They'll maybe do lease out the land and, and other people will separate them because they actually have an operator that is looking after their asset for them. And then you have lots of people who are owner operators. They own that land and they own that business and they're operating that business. So there is an enormous amount of pride when you find those individuals who are that deeply embedded at every level. And they're the ones who understand and are looking to expand right now where we are in our economy. We saw them come out of 2008, a little more sluggish than the rest of the segments. And when I was talking to them five years ago, a lot of owner operators, they were just starting to think about doing refi and go back a couple of years ago. They had done those refis. They're really starting to look at expansion and now bring us to today. They're ready. They're coming to us now to say, okay, what's available? I'm ready to invest. I'm ready to buy. I'm ready to expand. Do you think there's a reason why it's like that right now? We just have got a really booming economy going on here. You've got three of the world's largest employers sitting in the Silicon Valley, and that is good for business. So, Yeah, because I know even like San Jose, right? Google is going to move into the Deardin station pretty soon. Well, I guess the Deardin area pretty soon. So if you go to San Jose, you see cranes in the air, like so much new development. But then, of course, people are always saying, oh, 2020 is coming around, 2021. We've been in this boom of an economy for such a, for such a long time. When's the recession going to happen? It's kind of scary, right? You know, it's like, I don't know. I personally think the economy is still going very well, but other people are thinking that we're heading to a recession. And meanwhile, there are people who are still building a lot in San Jose. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Two years ago, I went on a real estate tour and it was put on by the downtown San Jose Association, the Downtown Association. And I remember, so there's four buses 
we were all developers. We're sitting on those buses. We're cruising around looking at all the new permits and having a look at all the new build that was planned and underway. And I remember the buses were exciting, right? The folks who were on there were excited to see what was coming down the pipe. And then there was one person who hopped on beside me at one of the stops. And we were about three quarters of the way through. And he leaned in and he said, don't you see a bubble? <laughs> is this a bubble? And, and this is like two years ago. And I said, no, I, I don't see the bubble. And I don't think anybody else on in this bus does either. I think that what's being built is really required. And, you know, I, I came from Vancouver, BC, and I almost saw a similar transition happen there. Um, it was kind of a combination of things with what was happening in the world in a, in a world's expo that was held in Vancouver that started to, to draw attention to the place. And I saw that go from the very same single story, older stock, large lots with a resource-based economy where I saw that grow into a place that was really vibrant with, and we needed to go up because we couldn't go out in terms of build to house people and to employ them because new businesses were coming in that were replacing and augmenting the resource-based economy. And not to say, I mean, Silicon Valley is far from a resource-based economy, but we're certainly, we're moving from a life stage of having young tech companies and even relatively young, you know, even if you look at our semiconductor industry, they're starting to mature. They're not going anywhere. In fact, they're growing and we're seeing that persist. And so when I look at that growth and I see how desirable the city is really becoming, that's going to become more and more attractive. That will attract employers and employers attract employees and they need housing and amenities. And then I guess the second part to your question is around the economy. I really lean and look to the experts who are in that space. And so I attend a lot of economic updates. I, I attend them for locally here in our local real estate association, they offer them. And then I go to the ones that are regional for California. I look to Beacon Economics out of LA to provide me information for California. And then I look at a macro level, you know, Malden, who is looking at, you know, nationally what's going on and internationally. And when I look at their messages across the board, because I want to know what's going on internationally, but it's so important and critical to know what's happening right here in our own hometown. And everybody that I am listening to in the reports I'm reading keep telling me the same message. What I'm hearing is it's fine and it looks like it's projected to be fine. It's not outstanding. It's not, you know, it's not earth shattering. It's just fine. So for my business model, you know, I've got a five-year roadmap that I'm working to. That's great news. Sounds good. Uh, it seems like you have a lot of cool connections and, you know, like I've always wanted to go on a development tour before too, but I've never heard of these groups. So what are some of the associations that you're a part of and what are some of the conferences that you attend and you recommend that others should attend? Oh, yeah. No, the hospitality industry, I think, is so fantastic for their conferences. So every year for, the, I guess it's been four years now, I attend the Hospitality and Design Conference. It's always held in LA. And that one's interesting because it's not focused on development. But in that space is where you get to really get into the weeds of the actual construction and the actual asset itself, because in that room are all of the designers and all of the vendors and all of the suppliers that support that industry. And so when you're on that show floor and you're able to talk to the people that are supplying linens or they're supplying the lamps or the flooring, 
you're able to get a real sense of, of the health of the industry because, and you understand what's important to them. So this year when I was there, there was even signs on the booth that were handwritten that just simply said, you know, supplying locally because the issue of the tariff has such a huge impact. It's one thing for us to go out and domestically buy something for our home and think, oh, that's probably gone up a few bucks. But it's another if you're going to be buying 400 lamps or 400 toilet paper holders. Those are supply and stock that on a grand scale could really, really impact your bottom line. So by attending that conference, it really gives us a sense of kind of at a ground base level in the weeds, what's going on in industry. And then they also have great speakers, which just talk about the innovation and the trends that are coming up. So that's really exciting to hear from the owners themselves and the developers. This is going back, you know, four years ago, I started to hear, you know, how are people positioning themselves for Airbnb? What about the micro hotel? What about the pods? What were people looking at that we would not see in the marketplace for years to come? And now I'm seeing it come to fruition. So it's always nice to be on that edge. The other conference that I find really valuable is coming up in January. It's the America Lodging Investment Summit. That's a great place to just go and make deals because you've got 3,000 delegates in that room. You've got an enormous range of speakers. If you want to hear about the economy specific to this industry, that's where you're going to go and hear somebody like Chuck Patel, who has owns the most Marriott's or did last year anyway, this year, across the nation. So these are folks who've got their finger on the pulse and can really give us that insight uh, for somebody like me. And then you get great access to the brands at those conferences. You've got great access to potential capital partners. They're all out there and you just have to be available and be willing to go with an open mind to learn and, and to, to network with that purpose of bringing home business. Then, of course, a little closer to home, our team's really active in the California Hotel and Lodging Association. And we make sure that we get up to capital in the springtime in March for the legislative summits. So again, that's, you know, we spend a morning learning about the issues that are really important to the industry and whether or not we, we're going to go in as a group to oppose, to support, or to maybe, you know, look for authors on bills, things like that. And we'll then spend the afternoon going and, and talking to the assemblymen and the senators and looking for that support and providing that insight. And that's really valuable because now I'm starting to get a real sense, you know, politically, it's not just practically how do you operate this, but politically, what are the issues that need to be cleared out of the way to make sure that the business side of things is the most profitable and is contributing to society? I don't miss that because it's a fantastic way of getting another deeper level into the industry. So those are kind of the three. And then even more locally, I'm also a member of the Silicon Valley Concierge Association. And that's hundreds and hundreds of members. And it's everybody from folks who own hotels, they operate them, to the people who provide the flowers, to administrators who book up hotels for conference space for their companies. So it's a really wide, wide range. And again, being a part of those organizations helps you understand what the health is and more when we talk about demand drivers, I understand that deeply. I'm not concerned at all about those occupancy rates that are forecasted. I know there's a real need for these assets. So if there was a new investor who had some assets, you know, decent connection, and they wanted to get into the hospitality industry, what kind of tips would you recommend for them? Oh, sorry, what kind of which tips you need? What kind of tips would you need or what kind of tips would you recommend for them to get started? 
Oh, partner. We consider ourselves still really new to the space. We have some wonderful partners that uh, and advisors who have been generationally doing this. So they may be third generation hotel owner operators and their insight is so valuable. So we sponsor things like golf tournaments where we know owner operators are going to be there, activities that they support, charities. And that's a way to get to know them. A lot of them are my friends now. They're people who, you know, I need that sounding board that can tell me what they learn and to, so that I can learn from their experiences. But if you're new to it, definitely find a strong partner and listen carefully and follow their advice. So what kind of value can a new investor offer to someone who's more seasoned? A new investor, what kind of value? Funds. Yeah, there's more projects out there than there is funds right now. So, and we know the funds are there. It's just a matter of, so for somebody like me, our company is really focused on the operations and the implementation. We're not a capital fund. None of us that are in the ownership of the company have ever run a fund before. And so that is a capability gap in our company. So we reach out to others to help us with that. And that's one of the spaces where we could definitely do with more help. And we're sitting on so many projects and we just go one at a time. And as we raise the funds, then we launch the next one. But if I was an investor with uh, and wanting to know how I can help, oftentimes investors who actually want to get into the space, what we offer sometimes is a mentorship program. So if, as long as they come in and bring the funds either themselves or fundraise to do it, we will allow them to be a junior project manager for the entitlements under the direction of our director of entitlements. So they're getting handheld through it. They get access. They can see our templates. They can see how we operate. They're drinking through a fire hose, but at any point, if they need to step away, they can, knowing that somebody's ready to step in for them. So That's cool. That sounds like a really good opportunity. And it's interesting because I think other people I've had on my show have never said that. They've always said, we have too much money. We need more legitimate deals. I think you're the first person that says, we have too many deals and we need more money. So we should like hook you guys up together, right? Oh, absolutely. No, it's incredible. We have people contact us every single week. We review between two to three projects every single week. Our team meets for one hour to do that deliberately. We have an evaluation criteria. We actually have a worksheet that we give to people to provide us information so it makes it efficient for us. And our initial intake, we generally turn around results within 48 hours to tell them if we're going to move ahead with actually doing a financial feasibility and do a city visit, or if it just at first blush is not something that's suitable for us. And then after that, if it looks like it's a go, we kind of have a a weighted average calculation. So if it hits a certain score threshold, then we'll go out and do that extra work. A lot of companies will charge you for that kind of feasibility study. And as long as it looks like it's viable, we don't. We just keep moving ahead. And then we'll come back and we'll give you the three options. We'll generally look at the property, what it's worth today just to buy it. And then we'll look at it, well, what's it worth if we were to buy it with a long close of escrow that would let us get that time to complete the approvals. What's it valued at if we were to joint venture it, either with the person who brought it to us that might want to buy it full on, or if it's a landowner who brings it, if they want to joint venture it with us. And then finally, we just look at kind of just what the value is if we need to go out and raise all the funds and still continue the entitlements. So we present all of that information on a little one pager. And that's why we know, I mean, we've got a portfolio right now of close to about 12 projects. 
they're valued at $555 million total. If somebody has that fund and they want to put it towards it, they're all feasible. They're all ready to go. And most of them were direct to the owner. So there isn't a burning rush. And we know that those owners are waiting to work with us. It's, it's fun. It's starting to be where before I would do a lot of driving around with my kids and I would spot things. And now it comes to us. Right. So when you talk about new investors coming and helping you guys raise money, what kind of capital are you guys looking for in terms of dollar amount? Oh, most of our projects, we start with a minimum of 250000 And that's what we call our subscribed members. So every single project has its own LLC created. And you come in to buy member shares in that LLC as a limited partner. And you get a preferred return. They're generally between anywhere from 8 to 25% returns. Obviously, the ones with the higher returns are either a shorter time frame. So like I've got a very quick close of escrow and I need to raise the funds and I need it like in the next 10 days, then I'm probably going to be offering a really healthy return. Projects where it's like it's a longer time frame, maybe I've got 18 months to work through this and I have to hold your funds longer, but super solid, little relatively less risk. Those will have more like an 8% pref. So and those investors are always paid first before ownership is. And then we also offer equity. So if somebody's going to bring the full capital stack, then generally they, they can get anywhere from anywhere from 60 to 80% of the value of that project, which is really healthy. Okay, very cool. Uh, I was more asking in terms of like, you know, you said you have some investors who want to partner, right? They're brand new, they want to help contribute. And you kind of need them to raise funds for you guys, right? What kind of capital are you kind of, you know, asking them to bring into the table for them to be like, all right, you can be part of our general partnership. Again, it depends on the property. So they will generally look through the opportunities that are available right now and then see which one fits. So some of them, you know, we could get into the land for like 3 million. And in that case, maybe you're only paying 3% of the deposits up front and the entitlement fees. So entitling fees, any range anywhere from one to two and a half million, depending on the project. So if you were to get into a project where you were just putting down deposits and having a long close of escrow and you wanted to cover the entitlement fees, you probably need around about a million and a half to get into that comfortably to establish that company properly. You know, we work, we have a preferred general counsel who's just fantastic and makes sure that all of our paperwork and our offering documents are professional and that with current law, you wouldn't believe how many times originally they'll look at paperwork and it isn't even current law that the offering documents drawn up in. And so we use an attorney who is not only a specialist in real estate, but also in the hospitality space. So they're looking at it with a lens of what if they don't sell it on to a buyer? What if they are the end developer who built it out? So going back to your question, somebody who can get in with a total of, you know, one and a half million, that would be a kind of a base level if you wanted to really take it from end to end. So just to clarify, because you're doing a long close of escrow, basically what that means is you have another contract, but you don't close until after the entitlements are approved by the city, right? So 12 to 18 months later, and that's why you only need to come up with the 3% for the EMD and then like the 1 and 1.5 million for the actual like entitlements from the architect and structural engineering. You're really close. What we generally do is get into a contract that allows us to assign that onto the next buyer. So we won't even close. It'll simply be an assignment agreement. And uh, obviously your seller needs to be open to that. They need to always best to be upfront with the seller, the landowner, that that's what you need to do and want to do and have the flexibility to do that. That will 
prevent any misunderstandings because that's another risk that you have in investment in real estate is if I'm going to get into a project where it's got a long close of escrow, now I have a contractual risk that could exist. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You're basically doing uh, you know, high stakes wholesaling, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Do you mind sharing? Like if you buy a property, the land value is like $3 million and you put in a $1.5 million into it, what could you wholesale something like that for? So generally speaking with Silicon Valley, developers who are picking these up to build them out are looking at about fifty dollars to $90,000 per key is what they'll pay right now. So if you use that as a rule of thumb, and I know that's a pretty big, wide range, it means that, you know, a site today that's available for maybe $8 million, that you would put about, you know, 130 rooms, 150 rooms on it, you're probably going to come out at around $13 million. So in there, you can kind of do the math. Sorry, you lost me. Where did the 13 million come from? I heard like 8 million and then I heard 13 million. Where did the difference come from? Yeah, so you might pick it up for 8 million, put a million and a half in there for entitlement costs, and then you'll sell for 13. And we always encourage our investors, what I ask them to do is when you're looking at projects, look very closely at your use of funds and look very closely at the projected sales price because you want to make sure that that price that they're coming out with provides enough profit margin to pay your investors. So it's all fine and dandy to say, I'm going to pay you first, but you need to have profits in there to pay somebody. So you need to understand that there is a demand for that asset. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll get an appraisal when we go in. And I can tell you an example. There's a project that was done just recently down in Redwood City. So they went in and appraised it a year before they started, right when they started. So Kemen's around $5 million. After approvals, the appraisal comes in at $10 million. So if you think that they put maybe a million and a half to $2 million in there for entitlement costs, these are real lifts that exist and are possible. If you look at another project that happened in Los Altos, the Los Altos Planning Committee was actually quite critical of approving the project because they simply said, hey, the developer is going to make a ton of money on this. Well, rightly so, the developer says, well, hang on, what's your personal profits or the company profits got to do with the fact that the city has zoning that supports this build and the city wants to have this build? Why is this even becoming a consideration? So when we look across the Silicon Valley and what's happening here and across the nation, actually, it's, it's always been a fact matter that if you buy land that's unimproved and you improve it, you're going to increase the value. And the values are significant in most cases. But there's also times when the project has failed and it hasn't been approved or you can't get what you want out of it and you have to change design and pivot or you don't get the approvals full stop. Something happened. So with the great returns also comes the great risk and investors need to be prepared. So we only work with accredited investors and we tell them you need to be prepared to lose 100 percent of what you're putting into this. This is a real estate backed investment. It's high risk. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about fifty dollars to $90,000 per key, that's talking about the unimproved land. Like That's how they're going to buy it from you? That's their evaluation? When folks come in to buy these from us, they're buying the approvals more than they're buying the land. So the location has to be really great. And that's why we do a lot of work with the brands ahead of time to make sure that this is someplace that they want to put it. They want to see their brand. They want to see the flag flying in that location. If you don't have brand buy-in, then you're going to be running an independent hotel and in the Silicon Valley, that can still make money. Absolutely. There's such a huge demand. If you're new to the industry, you're better to have that support and that guidance and especially the marketing support. 
And if someone's brand new and they want to work with you guys, you know, they probably don't have like access to your deals. So how would someone go about uh, raising $1.5 million from people out in the world? How does somebody do what? How does somebody raise like $1.5 million from their connections? I mean, because like, they're not part of your deal, right? So it's kind of hard for them to say, oh, we have this great deal. I mean, they're, they're not really part of your team yet. So if they're new. You know, it's the kind of thing where when I first started to raise funds for projects, I was almost embarrassed. It was almost like, hey, are you interested in this? And now I've come to really realize that there's people who are out there and this is what they do for their livelihood is they're looking for a place to deploy funds to. It's a business. And so that's who you need to find and to start to recognize that you have the ability to meet a need that others have. And that, you know, I've kind of moved away from folks. Originally, it was, you know, people were just interested in getting into a deal or into the industry. And now it's really I'm looking for people who understand that they have an asset, which is the funds, and that they can put that to good use. And I'm looking for folks who are actually evaluating different projects, because then I know that I've been compared to others. And one of the things I always ask them is, how does this deal stack up against everything else you're looking at? And if they're not looking at anything else, then they need to. And that's kind of a really key indicator. And where do I find these people? It's like it's now moving away from my sphere of influence, which was kind of, you know, my, my parent group school or my network in my business, you know, where I every time I would go out, I'd be having conversations about what I'm doing. But now I'm a little bit more deliberate. So can I go to conferences that are designed specifically to put investors and capital partners and developers in a room together. Those are the conferences that, uh, you know, you asked earlier, I kind of gave you my top two favorites, but you'll find me at something almost every single month. And I'm a lot more selective about the ones that I attend now and the purpose I go there with and doing my pre-work to source out, okay, who are the people in the room who are offering capital and how do I get in contact with them? That's the purpose for going. So that's where I go to go find investors now. And as we're as a company, as North Star is developing and growing, we're now having the conversation more with funds as opposed to individuals. Right. You know, I've heard just by talking to other people that sometimes it's best to try to raise funds from people who are not real estate investors because people who are in the real estate industry already have like a preconceived notion for what a good investment should be. But people in other industries would be like, oh, you know, like 7% return. That sounds great. You know, much better than putting my money in the stock market or something like that. That's a really interesting point because uh, I did a lot of work with startups when I first arrived here in Silicon Valley. I had experience, um, a credential as, as an executive and business coach. So I'd come in and help folks just get solid on their vision, goals, objectives. And a lot of those same people that I was reaching out to to raise funds for startups five years ago, I'm now opening those lines of communication. And it, it never occurred to me until recently, hey, they actually have access to funds that need to diversify and want to diversify. And they're open, it never occurred to me, they're open to actually creating a fund in a new asset class. So it doesn't necessarily need to be technology. It doesn't need to be software. It doesn't need to be, it could be real estate. And having that conversation with them, especially if you're able to couple it with, hey, maybe we develop something that actually supports one of your startups. Like how interesting is that to you? So that's another pool of funding that's kind of recently kind of, you're right, looking to people who are unfamiliar with real estate as an investment and introducing them to a side of it, especially when you couple it with a business on top of that real estate. Exactly. 
If you were to close on a property besides doing the whole like 3% down payment and then paying for entitlements, if you were to just close on the property itself, how would you typically structure the financing? Did you do like 25% down, 35% down, and then get like a loan from a commercial bank? How does the whole thing work? So up until very recently, it's always been all investor funded. And that's been my preference because it was all I knew. It never occurred to me to go and actually just go and get a conventional loan. I didn't know that you could even, that you would qualify for it, to be honest. And so, but more recently, I've been introduced to the world of hard money lending. I've been introduced to the world of, we have people who come through their IRA accounts. And so we also have them signing, you know, unsecured promissory notes. So all these instruments, you know, some of the most complex things that you can do, and this is why you need a rock solid attorney who can prepare those offering documents for you and ensure that all of these instruments work well together and that you are paying and that everybody understands that's involved in the deal, who's going to get paid when and in what order. So yeah, the hard money loaning, I was actually really fearful because the perception is that this is a very, you know, very aggressive industry, that it was, you get caught up in something very quickly that might not be to your advantage, would be you know, derogatory. And I would say the best thing I did, I probably went out to over 30 hard money lenders and interviewed them all. And you need a project to float through them for them to evaluate it solid. And once you've done that work, then you will come to see who is actually aligned with your value system and your operating principles. And you will see who is a good fit for you. And once you've got that solid, now you can look at terms and then you can negotiate. And it's going to be deal by deal. Every single one's different. And find a good broker as well. You know, we used a money broker and we've got, they're really, really valuable in terms of guiding and being a part of that process. It's not just an introduction and a handover. They are part of your negotiating process. They're part of your deal. And they'll really help you open your eyes to things, the questions you need to ask if you don't know. So for this particular one that you did, what was like the percentage of like financing for the first and how much of that was investor backed? It's almost all investor backed and it's a small hard money loan. We're a new, a relatively new company. And so trying to find anybody that will lend you money as a conventional lender is really challenging because you've got no track record and you need to be able to demonstrate that you've got a rock solid team because they're looking at the character of that borrower and they're looking at, yes, the project's important, but what's the character of the borrower? How likely, that's the risk they're taking. How likely is it that the borrower has the ability to complete the work and find the profits in this and be consistent with you know paying that regular payment, whatever the payment terms are that you come up with. So you raise several million dollars and then you just have uh, like a hard money lender fill in the rest that you couldn't raise for that particular deal? Yeah, it really depends too. If you have a lot of time, then you might not ever need a hard money lender but or a conventional loan. But if you don't have a lot of time, you've, the deal's crossed your plate, you know, maybe you've got an owner who's in an exchange situation and you can pick up the land, but they've, they're limited on their side as to the timing. Now you've got a great situation because now you can negotiate with them on the price to bring it down so you're not paying a premium. Because oftentimes if you have a low, long close of escrow, you'll pay a premium price for that, right? You're kind of paying, you're holding land that we know is appreciating. So you're probably going to pay more for it than today's rate. Now, if I have somebody who needs to close immediately and they're like, I'll take an all cash offer, you got to find the cash. And so you raise like crazy kind of run to the cliff. And instead of going off the cliff, you say, okay, let's bridge that. And let's bridge it with a loan. 
and that's what you do. And you need to find a lender who is willing to also take those daily updates from you about where you are in your raise and can stomach when you say, I raised nothing today because they're asking. Yeah. Well, that's super exciting. So what's next for you guys? Uh, we're just going to continue on with our roadmap. As I said, we've got you know this dozen or so projects that are feasible and ready, and we continue to have our monthly discovery sessions and do one-on-one meetings. We'd love to have a stronger partner to come in and, and do capital raise for us, but with the absence of that, we'll do it ourselves, and we'll just keep doing what we do while moving ahead the projects that we have underway. So it's exciting times. There's a lot to happen here, and I'd like to see it kind of really scale and grow. I feel like we've got all the right partners in place and we've got all the systems and we're ready to scale. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I'm excited for you guys and hope to see you guys or I'm looking forward to seeing what happens to you guys in the next year, right? See how much more you guys have grown since then. Yeah, I do remember when we came to meet each other a few years back and I think you were coming new into the space. I was coming new into space and I remember thinking, or I think we even said, hey, let's keep in touch and one day we'll circle back to talk about our success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really exciting to to kind of connect recently out there while we were both networking and then go, hey, what are you doing? And and both of us know I'm really super excited to see where you've taken your business as well. It's just been a joy to watch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's been great. So Shannon, thank you so much for your time. How can people get in contact with you? Um, well, we've got a website, www.northstardevgroup.com. I'm on LinkedIn under Shannon Shackerley Bennett. You can phone me. You can email me. Come to our office and visit with us. We're local. We all live, work, and play here. We love to meet people and get to know them. Otherwise, join me at one of the conferences. <laughs> it's always fun to network there. <laughs> Perfect. And do you have any last words for our listeners before we end the show today? Yeah, just really enjoy what this holiday season brings to you. And I think in the words of Michael Helmickson, who runs an organization called Club Wealth, he's, he's always said that no success in business can make up for failure in the home. So take that time, enjoy this time, and stay focused on what's important. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it, too. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Here's some of the key takeaways from this episode. Partner with the right people to level up your game to take on large projects. Using Shannon's strategy, you only need to raise 3% of the purchase price to top the property. Then you can add in a clause to the purchase agreement that says that you don't actually close on the property until entitlements are approved by the city. By completing the entitlement process, you can assign the contract to a developer with approved plans for a huge profit. It's a very interesting strategy, and I hope you guys check it out. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.